0: Virginia's own Arthur Ashe was one of the world's best tennis players in the 1960s and 70s, winning multiple Davis Cup and three Grand Slam events, the US Open, the Australian Open, and Wimbledon. He was also deeply committed to human rights and civil rights causes, most notably the apartheid movement in South Africa. His career as an athlete an activist straddling the civil rights and black power movements, Ash fought against racism and injustice for the from the political center and welcomed public and private debate. Our speaker today will explore Ash's early life in Richmond and Lynchburg, as well as his legacy as a public intellectual. Eric Allen Hall is an assistant professor of history and Africana studies at Georgia Southern University, where he teaches courses in African American history and the history of popular culture. A native of suburban Chicago, he earned a B.A. in history from St. Joseph's College in 2004 and an M.A. and Ph.D. in American history from Purdue University in 2006 and 2011. Paul's scholarship has appeared in the Journal of African-American History and the International Social Science Review. His biography of Arthur Ashe, entitled Arthur Ashe, Tennis and Justice in the Civil Rights Era, the subject of today's lecture, was published in 2014 by Johns Hopkins University Press. Paul's work focuses on the intersection of popular and political culture, Particularly the relationship between sports and the black freedom movement. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Eric Hall.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me here uh, to Richmond today to, to talk about my book, to talk about Ash. Uh, as a whole, uh, I'd like to begin by thanking the Virginia Historical Society uh, and especially Graham Dozier for inviting me to participate in this banner lecture series. I'm um, honored to be here uh, with you all today to, to discuss the life and legacy of, of Richmond's own Arthur Ashe. Uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't thank my wife, Christina, for allowing me to be here today. We have a newborn at home. Uh, so, uh, she is, is bearing the burden of, of the family obligations, at least for a couple days, to, to allow me to be here. So, thank you to her. Um, I want to begin by kind of talking a little bit about the organization of, of my presentation. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, focus mostly on Ash's life here in, in Richmond uh, and in Lynchburg, uh, but I want to begin um, with his death in 1993. Uh, and then transition and talk a little bit about the history of African-American athletes, especially in the 20th century, uh, and then spend the bulk of my time uh, talking about Richmond uh, and and Lynchburg, uh, and and hopefully leave ample time at the end for for any questions you may have. Uh, And I'm I'm, I'm willing to answer any questions uh, about any aspect of Ash's life, uh, whether in Richmond or uh, whether it's civil rights or anti-apartheid activism or his work uh, as an author. Whatever um, you want to talk about, I'm happy to talk about as well. So let's begin uh, sort of with the end. Uh, let's look at Ash's, uh, his viewing, his funeral, because um, I think we can learn a lot about somebody's life uh, by, by looking at the ways in which they're remembered, uh, especially at something like his funeral. Uh, the Virginia state flags flew at half staff on February 9th, 1993 on the orders of Douglas Wilder, the state's first African-American governor. Hours before sunset on a cold and rainy winter day, White and black, rich and poor, men and women, liberals and conservatives all lined the streets of downtown Richmond to pay their final respects to Arthur Ashe, a man they remembered as an international activist, a world champion tennis player, a humanitarian, a teacher, a writer, a husband and a father. Many who attended the wake and the funeral services had no interest in sports and many had never played tennis or watched tennis. One Richmond woman braved the winter cold to honor Ash as a crusader against South African apartheid, someone who had risked his own career and reputation to help others. Future South African president Nelson Mandela agreed. Following his own release from prison on Robben Island after almost 30 years in captivity, a reporter asked him, who in the United States do you most want to see? Who do you want to meet? Arthur Ash was his unequivocal reply. One African-American professional standing in line described Ash as a role model for black youths. I owe him at least this, he told the Richmond Times Dispatch. He showed me it's okay to aspire. It's okay to be articulate. I never had an older brother. Instead, I had a hero. A Richmond City Councilman compared the loss to that of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. The sea of faces in line to pay respects to Arthur Ashe Jr. last night represented a melding of races and ethnic groups that observers said demonstrated the universality of Ash's message," wrote the local press. At 5 o'clock in the evening, the first of more than 5,000 mourners passed by Ash's mahogany coffin, which was surrounded by large floral displays, palms, and dim rose lamps. Ash, dressed in a navy blue blazer, a blue shirt, and a tropical colored tie, appeared peaceful and at rest. Visitors left behind all kinds of things. For Ash. Uh, One left behind an old tennis ball, another an inscribed American flag, others bouquets, many cards. So long, Arthur, whispered one guest. The struggle continues. One writer for the Richmond Times Dispatch, Bob Lipper, wrote He was black, I was white. He was a world class celebrity, I was just a guy from his hometown paper. But there were no barriers, no gaps, no veneer to separate us. I have a feeling that's how he dealt with anyone who was fortunate enough to know him. Lipper was right. The next day, a line began to form outside of the Arthur Ashe, Jr. Athletic Center in North Richmond six hours before the funeral. They waited, wrote one reporter, dotting the sidewalks like like the bright chrysanthemums, pansies, and geraniums arranged outside the Ashe Center. They leaned against rental trucks, sat on flatbeds, stood on the crowded ropes. They carried cameras and babies, video cameras and puppies, they took annual leave from state jobs or simply shut down their businesses. Former tennis players Stan Smith and Charlie Passerel, along with Rod Laver, joined Senators Charles Robb and Bill Bradley, the New York City Mayor David Dinkins, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson Jr., or excuse me, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. They sang songs like We, Should, we Shall Overcome, the anthem of the civil rights movement, along with songs like When the Saints Go Marching In. The eulogies at the funeral were powerful. Arthur Ashe was just plain better than most of us, said Dinkins. Most athletes, Jackson explained, limit themselves to achievements and contributions within the lines, but Arthur found greatness beyond the lines. Governor Wilder noted how Ashe used every fiber of his strength. When the service concluded, the eight pallbearers guided Ashe's casket into a hearse designated for Woodlawn Cemetery. Woodland Cemetery, where he would rest for eternity in a plot beside his mother, Maddie. And I think if you look at the the funeral of Arthur Ashe, you you really get a sense of what he meant to people, uh, not just as an athlete, uh, not just as a Richmond native, but as somebody who fought for civil and human rights causes throughout his life, somebody who was a humanitarian uh, who stood up for uh, educational reform uh, and other areas throughout his life. Um, but Ash was, was not the only significant athlete of, of the 20th century, and I think to, to really kind of understand Ash's legacy and his significance, it's important to kind of look back at the context of other African-American athletes of the 20th century. So that's what I want to do just for a second here, and kind of look at the ways in which historians have tended to classify and categorize athletes. Historians of journalists have often categorized or attempted to categorize black athletes of the 20th century in really kind of one of two ways. Uh, on the one side, you have what these historians have called the accommodationists, uh, athletes like Jesse Owens there on the bottom right, uh, Joe Lewis on the top left, and Althea Gibson, uh, athletes who played hard, broke records, and achieved celebrity stardom, but stayed mostly silent on the issues of race. And, and of course, this is going to change with Joe Lewis into the 1940s and later in his career, uh, but, but especially in the 1930s, he, he was mostly silent on the issue of race. Uh, These prominent men and women contributed to the black cause by winning on the field and serving as positive role models for blacks and whites. So in other words, they chose to pioneer through their performances. Someone once wrote, explained Althea Gibson in her autobiography, that the difference between me and Jackie Robinson is that he thrived on his role as a Negro battling for equality, whereas I shy away from it. That man read me correctly. On the other side stand the perceived radicals and militants, people like Bill Russell, top left, Jim Brown, top right, and of course Muhammad Ali on the bottom right. And these are athletes who use their celebrity as a platform for social and political activism. Uh, And nobody personifies this category better than Muhammad Ali, a superbly talented boxer, one of the greatest boxers of the 20th century, who changed his name, of course, from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali just before winning the heavyweight championship in 1964. Ali inspired working class African-Americans by defying white America, by joining the nation of Islam, by dabbling in black power politics and culture, and by refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Now, part of what I argue in in the book is that this kind of either-or approach to classifying black athletes, either accommodationists on the one hand or uh, militants on the other, radicals on the other, uh, really doesn't take into consideration or consider how other African-American sportsmen, perhaps the majority of African-American sportsmen, responded to racism, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. Uh, and responded in more modern, nuanced ways. And, and what I suggest in the book is that Ash uh, very much responded in, in very nuanced and, and uh, moderate ways to these various movements. Um, so sort of who was Arthur Ashe, right? I think we know who Arthur Ashe was for the most part. But let me kind of hit on some of the main um, achievements. So this is a picture of, of Ash, a, a little bit younger than we're sort of accustomed to seeing him uh, in, in, in two pictures here. Very, very thin back then as well, uh, even in his early days. Uh, Who was Ash? He was one of the top international tennis players between 1966 uh, and 1975. Uh, He was the winner of three Grand Slam events: the US Open in 1968, the Australian Open in 1970, and of course Wimbledon in 1975, where he defeated uh, Jimmy Connors in a a huge upset. Um, As a player and also as a captain in the 1980s, he led the US Davis Cup team to Multiple titles, and of course, he won many other world championship tennis titles and, and, and many, many other titles along the way. Uh, one writer, the, the very famous Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times, wrote Anyone who wouldn't watch Arthur Ashe play tennis wouldn't watch Picasso paint, Hemingway write, a diamond cut, or a stair dance. Nobody calls him art, but he is. Um, what I suggest in the book is that really off the court, and, and my book focuses more on, on Ashe off the court than on the court. Uh, Off the court, and especially in the arena of international politics, he positioned him really at the center of the black freedom movement. Um, And historians use the term black freedom movement to kind of uh, conflate a variety of freedom movements of the 1960s and 70s, such as the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Black Power Movement, the Black Consciousness Movement uh, in South Africa, and what I argue is he really uh, struggled at times and was more successful at other times at negotiating those poles of the movement, uh, polls that uh, include assimilation into white society on the one hand and black nationalism on the other. Uh, fiercely independent and protective of his public image, he treaded that thin line throughout his career between conservatives and liberals, reactionaries and radicals, civil rights and black power, the sports establishment and the black cause. Uh, And what I found consistently in in doing my research is that he was criticized from both ends of the political spectrum with frequency. Um, Critics uh, would either accuse him of doing too much for the movement or not enough for the movement. Um, In 1992, when Sports Illustrated named Ash its Sportsman of the Year, it recognized his, quote, battered from both sides of balance. So I suggest that his, his evolving approach to activism, that's something I want to I emphasize, is that Ash's approach to activism really evolved over his life, that he was never static in his views, uh, that it was located somewhere between moderate and militant integrationism, that he relied on patience, but not too much patience, uh, direct engagement with white leaders in the United States and South Africa, and open dialogue with his opponents, and direct action that was targeted, direct action likely to, to succeed. Like most ordinary African-Americans, Ash adopted tenets of the civil rights and black power movements in arriving at his own form of activism. And his career really spans the civil rights and black power eras, unlike many, many athletes of the past, that he had to contend with this shift in the movement. Uh, Wearing an afro and embracing black empowerment, Ash practiced a strategy of gradualism and nonviolence. He grew with the black freedom movement. So what I want to do now is is sort of step back here and talk a little bit about Ash's early experiences in Richmond and in in Lynchburg, talk about some of his formative uh, challenges, and and, and I want to kind of tell that in in some ways through anecdotes, uh, stories, and experiences growing up uh, in in Virginia. Um, His personal journey began right here in Richmond, uh, on Richmond's north side. Uh, He was born in 1943 in the middle of of the Second World War, Uh, And growing up, uh, an African-American in Richmond presented a series of racial challenges, just like it did throughout uh, many, many cities, north and south, uh, in in the 1940s and the 1950s. There have been a number of historians who have looked at cities like Richmond, um, looked at cities in the south, um, and, and what they've argued is that places like Richmond's north side Um, really made up districts, uh, made up communities, excuse me, um, that were connected to the wealthier white neighborhoods really only by the city limits, that they were essentially kind of separate cities. And although some of these historians acknowledge greater racial, um, excuse me, greater residential fluidity in Richmond than in other cities such as Atlanta or, or Memphis, They contend that the city's white leaders never really reached out to middle-class blacks, leaving the North Side a, quote, separate city, isolated by race and geography. Um, So for for a young Arthur Ashe, uh, racial discrimination was simply sort of part of everyday life. And this is how he talked about it. He said, quote, I never thought much about it. Life was that way. There were certain theaters I couldn't go to, certain soda fountains and playgrounds that weren't for me. There was no fuss about it. Any more that you'd make a fuss if you couldn't get into a movie studio because you didn't know the right people, or you couldn't enter a Muslim mosque because you weren't a Muslim. People in Richmond just took segregation for granted. I don't remember any racial unrest there. Um, of course, there was a good bit of racial unrest in Richmond in the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, particularly in the campaign to integrate public transportation. Uh, and later in other parts of his memoirs, he does talk about particular incidents that, that he remembers, uh, one of which occurred um, on a city bus uh, in, in either the late 1940s or early 1950s, um, where Ash experienced firsthand the reality of segregated seating. Uh, he and his mother, Maddie, would sometimes board the bus uh, on Chamberlain Avenue, which was the unofficial divider between the black and the white neighborhoods, and at the shopping district, or he would transfer to, to visit his grandmother. Uh, and getting on the bus in, in Richmond, just like most towns in the South, uh, was an instant reminder of his place. He says, quote, I can clearly recall the white line on the floor of the bus. It was just to the front of the rear door, and I understood that I was required to stay behind it. I don't even remember discussing it. It was just understood. Although despite his familiarity with the white line, he did challenge the racial hierarchy on at least one occasion. Uh, His aunt Dot once recalled in a a, uh, tape-recorded interview um, how he stood up for his mother one time on the bus in the late 1940s. Uh, After boarding the bus and realizing that there were no seats available in the front or the back of the bus, uh, Ash, in a characteristically polite Arthur Ashe fashion, uh, asked a white man to give up his seat for his mother. Now, he could have been verbally, physically abused for such a request, but instead the man looked at him and his mother and said, if you have the nerve to ask me to get up and give your your mother a seat, I'm going to give her my seat. Ash's bold act revealed really kind of a willingness to challenge the status quo, but in certain situations, right? He was very good at kind of sizing up his opponents, of seeing uh, who would be best to challenge and, and who would be best not to challenge. It foreshadows his strategy of caution, right? Um, And I think he gets a lot of, uh, a lot of Ash's eventual sort of philosophy and activism, I think, in some ways, skip ahead here a little bit, uh, comes from from his father. And I want to talk a little bit about his relationship with his father, Arthur Ashe Sr. here for a second. Um, Unlike Arthur Ashe Sr.'s two sons, uh, Arthur and Johnny, um, who spent many of their days in Brookfield Park and other places, uh, Arthur Ashe Sr. had to work throughout his adolescence. Um, He was a jack-of-all-trades. He would remove weeds from gardens, clean houses, collect wood for families, do kind of whatever needed to be done uh, to to make ends meet. Uh, He attended public schools in Mecklenburg County through the eighth grade, often taking night classes with other day laborers so they could work during the day. At 16, he accepted a job as a maintenance man for the Richmond Railroad and eventually took the same job for the city. Uh, And he was never one to remain idle, never one to be accepting of a single job. Uh, He supplemented his income by mowing lawns, filling swimming pools, catering events, and chauffeuring prominent whites around town. And and this is where we get to sort of the second anecdote that I want to discuss. In a city, as I mentioned, known for racial division, uh, Ash Sr., befriended a number of white men and women uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, some of whom would help uh, to finance his son's tennis career later on. He was the driver, for instance, for William William Thalheimer, the, the Jewish owner of Thalheimer's department store in downtown Richmond. On one occasion, he drove Thalheimer to the edge of the city to purchase a piece of land. Now, the Depression had nearly bankrupted this seller, but despite the man's desperate need to sell his property, he was reluctant to sell his land to a Jew. You should have heard the man, Arthur Ash Sr. told his son years later. He called Mr. Thalheimer all sorts of things. Mr. Thalheimer never said a word. When the man finished all the ranting and raving, they closed the deal. Now on the drive home Ash Sr. is sort of perplexed by this and he asked Thalheimer how how could you tolerate all those insults without changing your disposition? And Thalheimer responded look I came out here to buy that land and the end result is I got the land. It's mine now. He can curse me out all he likes. Ash Sr. learned an important lesson from Thalheimer that day that he would try to pass on to his sons in coming years. No matter what people would say to you, he would tell Ash and his brother Johnny, no matter how much they would try to make you feel inferior, you must always keep that end goal in mind. And later on the tennis court, Thalheimer's strategy translated nicely for Ash. Ignoring racial slurs from spectators or bad calls from white linesmen, he would focus on the most important thing, winning the match. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of the relationship here between Ash uh, and his father, and, and particularly the ways in which his father protected him uh, from some of the dangers that, that youths uh, growing up in Jim Crow America may have uh, had to experience. Uh, Ash Sr. knew that, that the South could be a dangerous place for black youths. Uh, in 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American from Chicago visiting relatives in the Mississippi Delta was kidnapped from his uncle's home. Uh, killed, lynched, thrown in the uh, Tallahatchie River with a a cotton gin wrapped around his neck. Uh, And for Ash, and and as well as many, many uh, African-American youths, this comes up repeatedly uh, for historians in in research. Um, Till's murder was really a stark reminder of what could happen if you looked at somebody the wrong way or said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, Ash said, quote, My father tried to keep us out of harm's way, and the possibility of harm was real. We all know what happened to Emmett Till, whose death in 1955 cast a shadow over my youth, and that of virtually all black kids in Richmond, and no doubt across America. So in part to avoid what happened to Till, Ash Sr. kept a very close eye on his sons. Uh, As a parent, he was stern, he was unequivocal, his methods of discipline bordering on overprotective. On Ash's first day at the Baker Street Grammar School, for instance, Ash Sr. walked with him from Brookfield Park to the school's entrance, which was about a 10-minute trek. His father commanded that he return home exactly 10 minutes after dismissal, not a second later. Ash Sr. was was an old-fashioned disciplinarian, a man who would not tolerate insubordination from his sons. Uh, His view of of, of the world in terms of his child-rearing left very little room for, for nuance or debate. On the very few occasions when Ash returned home late, forgot to do a household chore or misbehaved, his father ordered him to retrieve his, quote, first quality cowhide belt for a beating. Uh, Ash sort of mused later on, only grade A leather would do for my behind. <laughs> in an interview just, just before Ash died in 1993, uh, he, he gave an interview in which he revealed well into his 20s and 30s, uh, he honestly believed that if, quote, if I got out of line, my father would kick my ass. Right. He does talk about, um, the. he's arrested twice, once in 1985 and then once prior to his death, I believe in 92. Uh, and he talks in both instances of the decision there to be arrested or not hinged on, the fa- on how mad his father was going to be with him. Um, and, and that he still kind, of con- still kind of thought about it a lot. Um, Ash Sr.'s commandments, and that's what he called them, his commandments, um, were to remain busy and productive at all times. There's to be no hanging around, he instructed his sons. If you don't have to be somewhere, you should be home. And Ash had plenty to do at home, uh, including making his bed, cleaning his room, feeding the dogs, chopping wood for the fireplace. Once he finished those, uh, he would devote his time to his schoolwork. And his father insisted that he uh, read, that he do his work well, that that he become uh, really the best reader in school. Uh, and if you know anything about Ash, he's somebody who would read extensively and voraciously throughout his entire uh, life. And not just uh, sort of books that you would find in uh, in Barnes and Noble, uh, books that you, uh, government reports, uh, uh, all sorts of studies, things like that. Um, Ash's father uh, said the following. He said, I tried to impress upon Arthur an old saying a woman who raised me in in South Hill once told me. He told a Richmond reporter in 1968. She said, A seeing eye and a listening ear, a silent tongue and a faithful heart, time and patience will accomplish everything. And you can see how that kind of manifests itself later in in Ash's career. Um, Now, while Ash is under the, the watchful eye of his father, he's also becoming quite a good tennis player. In the process, uh, he begins playing tennis very early uh, in his life. He learns to play on the courts of, of Brookfield Park. He wasn't permitted to play in, in Bird Park. Um, I think I have a slide here. This is a, uh, a, a postcard of, uh, of, of Bird Park. Um, I think around the nineteen fifties. Uh, but it shows you, uh, it's designed to show how nice Bird Park is, but, it, but I, when I show this to my students and I show this to, to in other lectures that I give, I, I ask them to kind of look at the people in the pool and, and see if they can see anything in common there. Um, <laughs> usually even the, the slowest ones generally do pretty well with this. Uh, that uh, Bird Park was not for people of color. Um, and, and there were ways to keep people out um, beyond simply telling them that they were black and you couldn't come. Uh, one of the biggest ones in tennis was that if you sent in a, a, a money to participate in a tournament or send in your registration, they, they would say that your registration came too late or you, they never got the check or or that sort of thing. So um, there were there were kind of sneakier ways to, to keep people out. Um, so we learned, Ash learned to play, um, learned from a, a young college student and local tennis star named Ronald Charity. Um, and, and eventually, Ash caught the attention of Dr. Robert Walter Johnson, who was an ATA officer and the head of the junior development program in Lynchburg. And this is Dr. Johnson here on the top right. Uh, and on the left is, is Johnson's home in Lynchburg, uh, which is now a, a historical site. Uh, the tennis courts would have been there in the back. Um, And and Ash would would every summer for for quite a number of years attend Johnson's uh, junior development program to kind of learn tennis, learn about uh, how to survive in a world alien to uh, people of color and the working class. You know, basically kind of a lesson in life, um, complete with a proper code of conduct. Uh, Failure to follow Dr. Johnson's rules at this camp uh, would result in a swift dismissal, a fact which Ash quickly discovered during his first three days in Lynchburg. Uh, When when Johnson's son, Bobby, who was assisting his father with the camp, tried to teach Ash the eastern and western racket grips, Ash refused to learn, believing that his mentor, Ronald Charity, had already taught him the appropriate grip. I wasn't taking any shit, Bobby remembered, telling the young man, well, if you want Ron Charity to teach you, why don't you go home? The elder elder uh, Johnson learned of Ash's stubborn behavior and phoned Ash Sr., who immediately drove to Lynchburg. After talking with Johnson, Ash Sr. approached his son in a stern, forthright manner, told him, Dr. Johnson is teaching you now, Arthur Jr. You do what they say. It was that simple, Ash recalled. I always obeyed my father. Johnson and his son had no more trouble with me. But to tell you the truth, he said, I really didn't change the grip on my backhand that much. Now, resembling a, almost an army boot camp, Johnson's program was rigorous and demanding. Uh, players began the day by making their beds before tending to a variety of chores, including clipping the rose bushes, trimming the boxwoods, weeding the yard and the garden, and worst of all, cleaning up after the dogs. <laughs> before graduating to a tennis racket, when, when they weren't doing chores, uh, each player had to show proficiency with a broom handle, uh, which was a drill designed to improve hand-eye coordination. Um, Once they did that, they would serve 50 times a day from all spots on the court. Um, But more of what I focus on um, than that uh, is that more than a tennis camp, this junior development program was really a life lesson, a life camp, offering strategies uh, to sort of navigate the segregated world of the Deep South. To succeed in the predominantly white, upper-class world of competitive tennis, uh, Johnson's pupils had to be disciplined and tough. They had to know when to fight and, more importantly, when to walk away. And Johnson based his his strategy and his ideas on on another uh, example, uh, Jackie Robinson, who integrated Major League Baseball in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and that Johnson's selection by Branch Rickey had as much to do with his temperament as it did his athletic abilities. I mean, there were other great uh, black baseball players in the 1940s that they could have chosen. They chose Robinson for a particular reason. Uh, Bean, spiked, taunted by racially motivated bench jockeying, Rob- Robinson remained calm and composed, at least for a couple years, allowing his bat and feet to do the talking. Johnson's players had to imitate Robinson, he believed, because tournament officials would look for any excuse to disqualify them. Uh, On the court, he ordered Ash and his other teammates to play any shot within two inches of of out-of-bounds to avoid the appearance of cheating. Uh, At the time, you would call your own lines in tournament play. And and so he he said, if it's within the two inches out-of-bounds line, play it um, so you don't get accused of cheating. The players were to ignore, as best they could, um, uh, racial epitaphs that were spewed their way. They were never to gloat, argue, complain, or celebrate in a visible way. And and this is something that Ash would certainly take with him throughout the majority of his tennis career. It's hard to find a moment where you see him uh, displaying any kind of emotion whatsoever on on the tennis court, although there were some. Um, His assumption, Ash wrote Dr. Johnson in his diary, quote, was that if you wanted to get into a poker game and there was only one game in town, you had better learn to play by the prevailing rules of the table. Right. Johnson told a reporter uh, for the Washington Post, quote, I can't use a boy unless he can control his emotions. Um, so Johnson was very, very aware uh, of not only making these players better to be able to compete on the court with white players, but also sort of teaching them the ways in which to kind of go about doing that. Um, and the rest, they say, for Arthur Ashe is history. Right? And I want to kind of take a little bit of time here and go through some of these individual slides and, and just talk for a few seconds about each one of them before I kind of finish with some concluding uh, remarks here. This is, uh, th- These are slides that I included for a particular reason because I think it shows two of Ash's uh, better strokes on the tennis court. Uh, on the right is, of course, his, his devastating serve. He was an incredible serve and volley player uh, throughout his life. Uh, he almost played tennis uh, the opposite of the way that his personality was in some ways. He was kind of all over the place as a tennis player. But uh, he had one of the, the quickest serves at the time, one of the fastest serves. He was a very intimidating player uh, from, from a serve and volley perspective. And the left is the backhand. He had an incredible backhand. Uh, had been taught uh, early on um, by, by his mentor, Ronald Charity, that the backhand, Charity said, was the easiest stroke to learn how to, to, to engage. Um, so his backhand was something they kind of relied on throughout, uh, throughout his career. This is a, uh, a picture of uh, Ash's tennis team at the University of California, Los Angeles in 1965 when he was at UCLA. Um, And again, with the exception um, of of, uh, one one other player, uh, it's a team made up mostly of white uh, players, as tennis was very, very lily white in the 19, uh, at least at the collegiate level and and, um, the amateur level in the 1950s. Ash there is bottom left, obviously. J.D. Morgan is is top right, who is his tennis coach at, at UCLA. Uh, At UCLA, Ash led his team to um, the national championship as an individual in 1965 and and also led his team to the team championship in 1965 uh, as well. Um, And if you wanted to play tennis in college, um, there were kind of two places you could play in the 60s that were elite programs. Uh, UCLA was one and USC was the other. Um, So he was recruited and and played at at really one of the best programs uh, in in, in the country. Uh, Although there were times at UCLA where... um, The team was invited to different tournaments and country clubs, uh, and Ash's name was conspicuously absent from the list of invitees. Um, The Balboa Country Club uh, is one example of that. This is a picture of Ash uh, embracing his father following his U.S. Open victory in 1968. Uh, he became the first winner of the U.S. Open in 1968, and also the first amateur to win the U.S. Open in 1968. It was the first year that the Open was a uh, that the, that the U.S. Championships, U.S. Nationals, were an open tournament in 1968. These are two pictures um, where I focus the the majority of my attention in in the book, uh, where I look at Ash's anti-apartheid activism between uh, 1969 uh, and and really through the the, the end of his life. Uh, These are two pictures taken in Soweto, uh, outside of uh, Johannesburg uh, in 1973, when he makes a visit there. And you see him interacting with local youths uh, living there um, in the slums. Uh, And this was actually a very contested visit. There were some younger um, militants who um, accused him of kind of selling out by going to South Africa, by uh, really engaging with the white government there. Um, But of course there were others that were very happy that he was there. Uh, And not just there, but willing to engage in conversations with black journalists uh, and locals and visit um, some of the townships outside of uh, Central City. Perhaps Ash's most uh, famous uh, moment on the tennis court, certainly what my students talk about when when I ask them about Ash, his victory over Jimmy Connors in 1975 at Wimbledon. Um, One reporter said that coming into Wimbledon, he had about as good of a chance as ice cream in a furnace to defeat uh, Jimmy Connors. Um, But Ash, this this sort of shows what an an intellectual athlete he was. He really planned uh, well for Connors. He, he almost approached it the way a, a fastball pitcher in baseball who was on the declining end of their career uh, would try to kind of throw junk at their opponent. Um, so he played kind of a yo-yo game with Connors, uh, dinked him, dunked him, uh, and, and really kind of outsmarted his opponent. Um, and, and what's significant here is that throughout the 20th century, African-American athletes have been often stereotyped as being unintellectual, that the way to beat a black athlete is you, 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 you're smarter than them, you outstrategize them. Uh, well, this is a case where he outstrategized a, a much, much uh, better opponent in terms of raw ability. Um, so this was a, a major—actually, the anniversary of this not that long ago. Ash was also involved in a number of, of activities, way too many to mention uh, here today. Um, on the top left, uh, testifying um, before the United Nations, he was one of the founders of, of Artists and Athletes Against Apartheid, uh, sort of shifted his views on South Africa following the Soweto uh, uprising, and you see other people there, Harry Belafonte uh, and, and others as well. And on the bottom right, he's, he's arrested in 1985 uh, following a demonstration outside of the South African embassy. It'll be the first time that he's arrested, uh, but not the, the last time that he's arrested. And of course, um, when I ask my students, when I ask uh, people that, um, you know, ask me about Ash, I ask them, well, what do you know about Arthur Ash? And they tend to tell me that he was a tennis player. Uh, who died of AIDS, that oftentimes the civil rights activism, the anti-apartheid activism is, is sort of missing from their discussion of Ash, but but this is on the left Ash during his, his AIDS press conference, uh, in which he revealed to the world in 1992 that he was uh, not only HIV positive, but also uh, suffering from full-blown AIDS, and of course he would die uh, about a year later in February of 1993. He was named Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. Um, before I conclude, I'd like to kind of finish with, with two little things here. Um, the, the first is, um, I wanna just emphasize a few things that, that I found interesting in, in my research and things that kind of stuck with me and continued with me as I, as I move forward. Um, the first is, is Ash was one of the most deeply intellectual individuals that I've ever come across uh, as a historian, not just as an athlete, but just as an individual, period. Um, he was a voracious reader. He read all kinds of things. He read newspapers. He read academic books. He, wrote gov- he read government reports. Uh, he read monographs. He read stuff that, that I couldn't pay students to read nowadays. Um, he had this great intellectual curiosity. He loved to debate. He loved to, to engage in, in these kind of intellectual um, tug of back and forth with people. Uh, and I think, perhaps most importantly, he really understood the issues. Um, he could engage in debates with, quote-unquote, ordinary people. He could engage in debates with professors at universities, from anthropologists at universities. Uh, it was tough to tell when he was up there speaking that this was a former athlete. Um, he could have been an easily a professor. And in fact, he did teach a couple of college classes at one point. Um, the other thing I want to I mention, something that kind of kept... Sticking with me is that really he he lived in a very challenging kind of time, a time where you really couldn't afford not to make a statement or not afford to take a stance on a particular issue. Um, he he came of age sort of uh, his coming out party as an activist emerged in 1968, the same year as as Bobby Kennedy's assassination, as Martin Luther King's assassination, as the riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, uh, and his career really extended into, into the Black Power era, where where the mainstream media would show these these Images of, of Black Panthers uh, in Oakland or uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, giving speeches uh, throughout the United States. And his, his views uh, really kind of evolved as, as sort of the movement evolved. So I want to end with a, a question that I've been asked quite frequently um, when I've done appearances, um, lectures, and, and podcasts and radios and, and things like that. Um, and the question that I'm always asked is sort of what would Ash think about all of the recent. Um, acts of um, disobedience on, on the on the courts and on the fields uh, of American sport. What do we think about all these athletes taking a stand on some of the, the recent events in Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland and and and, and other places? You know, how, what would he sort of make of that? Um, and what I always respond with is, it, this is a very difficult question to answer. Um, a because I, I, I am not Arthur Ashe. Uh, I Um, I know more or less kind of what he was thinking at certain times throughout his career, Um, but he died in 1993 and his his views would likely have very much evolved since 1993. Um, I know that in the late 1960s, he probably would not have risked an arrest during a protest, but of course 10 years prior to his death, he was twice arrested for protesting injustice. Um, I think the one thing that I can fairly definitively say is he he would have appreciated athletes or, or anybody for that matter, for taking a stand, uh, regardless of what that stand would be. Um, in general, he preferred uh, individuals, athletes, who would take a, any sort of a stand over no stand at all. And the example that I give is in the 1970s when Gary Player, the South African golfer, was being asked repeatedly about apartheid, he would often not want to discuss that at all. Um, he would often punt on the question, and Ash would, would, would say in the press, look, if he's in favor of apartheid, I'd rather know that. I'd rather know that than have him simply not answer the question at all. Um, secondly though Ash generally did not support on court demonstrations throughout his career I mean, there, you, you can't really think of a moment in which he engaged in major direct action on the tennis court itself um, he would often prefer to engage in his activism behind the scenes or at press conferences or in meetings uh, he didn't really engage in these same kind of demonstrations that these athletes uh, engaged in uh, but I think the most important thing the thing that I, that I can kind of keep coming back to over time Um, is that Ash would have, uh, I believe, really uh, encouraged athletes today, whether it's LeBron LeBron James, Derrick Rose, the St. Louis Rams, whoever it may be, um, to really study the issues at the heart of whatever their protests are, Um, that he'd want them to focus on kind of larger issues at hand, um, issues of poverty, high unemployment rates, inadequate housing, police-community relations, access to communities, Um, and, and that they should be well-versed in those topics before they sort of make a a stand. Or if they do, they should be able to answer questions uh, with some substance on on sort of different um, issues. So with that said, I I thank you very much for for listening to me. And I'm happy to entertain any questions you may have about any aspect of Ash's life. we'll start oh,
2: oh there's a mic okay. okay the Nash once coach at West Point
1: am I, did I, uh, yeah he did uh, he was he was a tennis coach at West Point when he was stationed there um, uh, right after he graduated from UCLA um, he was stationed at, UC, at, at at West Point as a data processor um, and and he talks about that experience um, fairly vividly uh, especially receiving phone calls from a number of uh, Um, parents of of people who had died in the Vietnam War and kind of hearing their stories. But yeah, there was a time that he spent um, coaching at at West Point.
3: As a uh, teenager in Richmond, when he was basically unknown by Richmonders, but an excellent example of his character, he picked up the phone, called the Tennis Professional to Country Club of Virginia, and said, I'd like to play in the state 18-and-under tournament. Fine. What's your name? Mm-hmm. Don't follow him. Mm-hmm. Did this. He let two or three days go by. Then Arthur called him back. The tennis professional was Fred Keschline. Mm-hmm. He said, Mr. Keschline, did you know I was black? Well, Fred Keschline, but spit all over him. and said, no, not blah, 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 fact, <laughs> He said, look, I am not going to cause you any embarrassment if if I'll be glad to withdraw, he please do, please do, I'll lose my job. And so as luck would have it, uh, a few days later, the state of West Virginia had an 18 and under tennis tournament. And the best white tennis player in Virginia, a Richmonder who will remain nameless today, played Arthur Ashe <laughs> in West Virginia and Ashe beat him 6-1, 6-1, 6-1. 6 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You spoke of, of uh, <clears throat> his relationship with his father, what a mm-hmm. firm disciplinarian he was. <clears throat> As he became more active in civil rights and apartheid issues later on, how did that relationship evolve and change?
1: I think um, part of the relationship with his father when, when he was younger was that his father knew that, that he was young and he wasn't in any kind of a position of power. He didn't have any kind of platform uh, at the time to be able to kind of really um, stand up for, for uh, based on a number of these issues. But as I think he grew as a tennis player, um, as he started to win tournaments, as he became a national player, um, as, as he really kind of established this sort of platform uh, for activism, um, his father understood that he could really do good by speaking out on, on these issues. And I mean, I do get the sense, um, I mean, they had a very, very strong relationship throughout, uh, his, throughout their lives. I mean, he, he continued to kind of revo- rely on his father's counsel throughout. Um, but I, I, I don't get the sense that really his father disapproved of any of his, his uh, activism for the most part because his activism was very measured by, by the standards of the day. Um, he would often, you know, he would rather go and meet with the board of IBM to talk about their hiring policies in South Africa uh, rather than, you know, stand on a street corner with a, with a sign. Um, he would really uh, insist upon meeting with people um, whenever he could uh, as opposed to, to actions of, uh, as, as opposed to direct action campaigns. Um, uh, I know that his father would sort of be angry with him. Uh, there was an instance in, um, where he walked off the court in a match against uh, Ilya Um and many people would probably want to walk off the court during a match with yeah, Ilya Nastasi, yeah, yeah. but uh, where his father didn't really agree with that uh, um, uh, method. But um, you, you certainly get the sense throughout the, the <coughs> remainder of their life that, that, that uh, his father was very proud of him and, and, and um, sort of understood that he, that he had to do what he did. Yes, Sir?
2: Excellent uh, presentation, uh, Professor Hall. Thank you. I was and am honored to have been a friend and classmate of Arthur Ashe's at the University of California, Los Angeles. He ranks with two others at the apogee of distinguished athletes who contributed to humanity. The other two are Jackie Robinson and Johnny Wooden. Mm. And I'm glad that you mentioned his father, and that you finally got to his army service, because Arthur Ashe, one of the titles that he most deserves, is patriot. Mm-hmm. He served on active duty when he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, "Why?" My father always told me it was my duty.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes) yeah. And and he he had a deep family history of of relatives who had served uh, in in the army. Um, He had had relatives who had served during World War II. His brother, of course, served uh, uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, And he he talked about he talks about this repeatedly in memoirs and interviews that uh, he loved playing for the Davis Cup team because the Davis Cup team, whatever you score a point, it's point USA, not point uh, Ash. Uh, And and he really um, and, and I think in some ways that's why he liked John McEnroe a little bit more than he liked Jimmy Connors. Uh, was because McEnroe really um, saw was similar to him in that he, he, was a, he, he played for the Davis Cup team because he wanted to play for his country and not for the amount of money that he could make in this event or that event or, or, or whatever. But yeah, his service is something that, that is often not talked about uh, so much in, in pieces that are done on Ash. They tend to talk about his tennis career, his Wimbledon victory, the fact that he died of AIDS, um, and some of the other stuff is unfortunately obscured.
4: I am Dr. Johnson's granddaughter, oh. um, who's originally from D.C., but I wanted to say that um, I thank you for sharing um, his that part of the story. Um, there are many stories uh, beyond that um, oh, yeah. to, to pursue, and I also am a, a benefactor. My siblings and I played at that very camp every summer <laughs> until <laughs> my grandfather got sick and died. And... He in fact sent home one of my brothers because he was uh, kind of had that Mac and enthusiasm. <laughs> so thank you, and um, you know, um, great story. I-, I feel that the story is not told. The depth of the story is really not explored as, as much as it could have been. But appreciate your thoughts.
1: Sure. No, thank you. And. Um And actually, I should I should mention two books um, now that I think of it. Um, when, you, when you talk about John Wooden, there was a, a the Seth Davis book on John Wooden was, was just came out. But there, there's a book also done by an academic named uh, John Matthew Smith, um, called Sons of Westwood. That really looks at Wooden in a historical context. It's, it's a pretty good read. Um, and, and there is a biography of, of Dr. Johnson by Doug Smith, the writer for, for um, USA Today. How, how well it's done, I don't know. Um, but uh, he, Johnson is somebody I think a lot more historical uh, work needs to be done uh, on him because he, he he was uh, a mentor not only of Arthur Ashe, but of Althea Gibson also, uh, which people don't really um, seem to talk about as much. And many, others. And many, many others. Right, right. Sir? Um,
2: many African-American athletes speak about the influence of their mother mm-hmm. on them. Uh, you haven't mentioned
1: uh, any one word about the influence of this mother. Sure. Um, Part of that is because she she passed away when he was very young, when he was five years old. Um, his, uh, his his and actually it, there were there were some people that uh, sports writer John McPhee particularly looked at, kind of his father looked at looked at his mother and said that look he had a lot more in common with his mother in terms of personality than he did with his with his father. Um, his mother was was somebody who really encouraged him to to read and and you know not just read Superman or comic books or things like that, but to really read kind of uh, important things and to read alongside him. Um, for the most part, Ash didn't really have the kind of strong female mentors that you, you, you tend to see in a lot of the, in a lot of these athletes. Um, because his mother passed away uh, so soon, his father kind of raised him. Eventually, his father would remarry. Um, but growing up, he would always cite, uh, as his mentors, he would cite his father, he would cite uh, Ronald Charity, uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, he would cite Pancho Gonzalez uh, when he started playing for the Davis Cup team, uh, J.D. Morgan, um, but his, his mother, um, unfortunately, died um, too early, way too soon. Go back there.
2: Arthur Ashe wrote a, a memoir called Days of Grace, mm-hmm. and he was assisted in that writing of that memoir by a man named Arnold Rampersad. Mm-hmm who was um, one of my English professors at the Mm -hmm. University Mm -hmm. of Virginia when I was a a graduate student in the 1970s. He's a brilliant man, went on to teach at at Princeton and Stanford, I believe. Wrote a biography of Jackie Robinson, Mm a biography of Langston Hughes. I'm wondering, uh, how did uh, Arnold Rampersad get to know Arthur Ashe, or how how was that connection made so that uh, he assisted him in the writing of the memoir? And did you interview Arnold Rampersad for your book?
1: Um, I, I was not able to interview him. There was actually a, a time where he was going to be um, on camp, someplace, somewhere I was going to be. I think it was Purdue or somewhere like that. And it turned out I, I uh, couldn't make it for, for whatever reason, or he couldn't. There, there was some, we kind of missed each other. Um, otherwise, that would have happened. Um, I'm not exactly sure the specific story on kind of how they met. Um, I knew that Ash um, in, in the in the 1980s was was um, very much in touch with kind of the black intelligentsia. He had many many friends, uh, Henry Louis Gates uh, and others who were professors at at universities uh, in the Ivy League and and other places. So so my guess is that probably he would have made that connection either through a talk that he gave on campus or. Um, an interaction at an event or, or something, you know, something to that effect, um, because he, he, he knew, he considered professors and, and people, uh, African-American studies scholars among his very close group of friends. Um, so I'm guessing that that's where the, the, the meeting took place, uh, where the introduction took place, but I can't, I'm not sure exactly.
2: Hi, um, great presentation. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, how did the um, attitude of the city of Richmond towards its native son Arthur Ashe change through the fifties and sixties and seventies, as eighties, as he became more um, accepted and and popular, and as segregation and Jim Crow ended?
1: Yeah, this is um, this is something that actually talks about uh, quite a bit in the memoirs. As as um, you know, growing up in Richmond. Um, having to deal with the segregation and and, uh, some of the problems associated with being a person of color in the city, Um, he talks about very vividly leaving Richmond um, for St. Louis in in 1961, um, kind of not looking back in the rearview mirror. Um, kind of wanting to leave behind um, the negative aspects of Richmond that, that he remembered and, and find this kind of better better place. But I think his, his kind of reconciliation with Richmond uh, happens um, really sort of in the 1960s. There's an Arthur Ashe day in 1966 in Richmond where the town kind of comes out um, to, to support him. Um, and I think very, very gradually kind of over time um, you know, he kind of comes to appreciate some of the good aspects of, of uh, the communities in Richmond, kind of comes to see some of the benefactors that it, had that it helped him uh, along the way, and, and really kind of understands that Richmond, like many, many southern towns, is just a very um, tough, complicated place uh, for, for a person of color. And, and I think he um, saw some of the advancements, that, some, of the, uh, some of the strides that were made in town. Um, and, and I think by the time of his death, he had fully kind of reconciled um, with the city. Over here, question.
2: Just wondering, uh, were there other sports that Arthur tried before he settled on tennis? Yes.
1: Uh, he was a big baseball fan, um, and he was actually quite a good baseball player. Um, and he tried to play baseball for his high school baseball team. He was a very fast uh, runner and a uh, very, very good player. And um, at one point, the the principal of, uh, of his high school kind of took him outside, had um, you know, sent a note to the teacher hey Arthur, come on down to the, meet with the principal. Uh, and the principal told him in, in no uncertain terms that you are not to play any sports other than tennis uh, for this high school moving forward. Because if you, you know, hurt yourself sliding into second base or you spike yourself, you know, you're, no, you're gonna be no good for us on the tennis court. And uh, we have enough black baseball players at this point. We do not have any um, black tennis players uh, that, that are at the elite level. So let's, um, so his, his, his sort of nice little prodding was that he, he
2: should stick to tennis. Yes, good afternoon. My name is Gary Flowers, and I agree with Dr. Johnson's granddaughter that we appreciate
1: your presentation today, but it could have been a lot more Mm -hmm. in-depth. In particular, I was
4: fortunate to have my father put a tennis racket in my hand. It wasn't that good, (laughs) but it was Arthur
1: Ashe's National Junior Tennis League Mm -hmm. um, that he began in Battery Park.
2: That took a lot of kids off of the street Mm -hmm. and, and exposed them to a sport outside of the traditional baseball mm-hmm. football and basketball so I think that should have been explored today mm-hmm. uh, and there's a far greater story that we have to tell
1: mm-hmm. yeah there, there are um, th- there's all kinds of stories of, of when he was an active tennis player and then when he when he retired of, of going into communities um, and working particularly with with children uh, uh, with people of color and, and sort of teaching the game of tennis to um, to 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 children that really weren't experienced uh, with it, that they kind of learned, you know, grew up playing basketball or, or football or, or whatever, but there really was this kind of effort, not just uh, in the Richmond area, but everywhere, um, to kind of teach African Americans um, to, to play tennis, to kind of draw more interest in a sport that was, uh, quite frankly, um, at the time, an embarrassment in terms of its racial um, makeup.
3: Um, excellent presentation, and I wanted to ask you Who were Arthur Ashe's best friends in the tennis world and maybe in other sports? And did you interview people like Donald Dell and Stan Smith about having come through the ranks of the the tennis world with Arthur Ashe?
1: Yeah, he had um, a number of friends that kind of keep coming up over and over again. uh, Donald Dell is, is the big one, obviously, who was his uh, Davis Cup captain uh, when he started with the Davis Cup team uh, and eventually turned into kind of his manager and his really close personal confidant. Um, he was somebody who traveled with with Ash to South Africa when he made his trips. Uh, was was very much an advisor for him. was somebody that he he, he trusted really more than anybody else. Um, and he took some flack for that throughout his career because Donald Dell was a white man. and And um, some argued that why are you hiring a white manager to kind of run your career? And um, and he would sort of you know point to to Dell's credentials and his involvement in politics and in causes and and things like that. Um, so so Dell was certainly one of them. I think. Um, uh, when he was married um, in the late 1970s I think um, his wife Jean I think took on that role as his number one confidant and advisor and somebody that he went to more than anybody else for advice and and uh, to kind of to to sort of talk about different things um, but but beyond that, Stan Smith was obviously a a great friend of his. Um, they were very active together. They did Goodwills, Goodwill tours together. They would travel. They traveled throughout uh, Vietnam together. They traveled in Africa together. Uh, and there's a story with Stan Smith where um, you know, Stan Smith, is, he's in Africa, and Ash is just being just mobbed and just cheered by the local populations there. Um, I think we were in Tanzania at the time. Uh, and, and Smith is kind of sulking in the corner saying, you know, everywhere we go, I'm like the evil white person who's playing opposite you. Um, and, 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 and Ash turns to him and said, look, Stan, when we go to the deep South, you can, you can be the great white hope. Okay? Um, and so, um, I mean, there were, there were, he, he had a very good core group of people, even some South Africa. Cliff Drysdale was, was a, a close friend, um, throughout his time, even during the, when it was very sticky with the anti-apartheid movement and, and things like that. Bill Bradley is somebody who he'd have a beer with every once in a while in New York when he was there. Um, so he, he really got along fairly well with people and, and um, um, really kind of had very diverse groups of, of friends.
3: Okay. One more
1: thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you.